It's Monday morning, so you know what time it is. It's time for another wonderful, action-packed, information-filled episode of Twice the Lutheran. Welcome back. Glad to have you. I'm Pastor Wells, that is Wells with two L's, because you guessed it, you know it, and you love it. I'm twice the Lutheran. And by this point, at six episodes in, you are no doubt at least 1.5 times the Lutheran you were before we started. You may even be approaching twice the Lutheran. The Capulets and the Montagues. You know who I'm talking about? One of my favorite writers and playwrights, good old Bill Shakespeare. You probably read that play in high school, if it's still required reading. I don't know. Maybe it's too advanced for today's generations. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. It was advanced for my generation, too. Of course, I'm talking about the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet, two star-crossed lovers, the romance that was interrupted by family grief and strife and intergenerational warfare, ending sadly, the Capulets and the Montagues. It's from that play that we receive a very famous saying from William Shakespeare, whose vocabulary was like 10 times the normal vocabulary. It was just awesome. Remember what he says about a name? Would a rose... Nope, it's not a question. I I phrase it as a question. Sorry, Shakespeare's rolling over in his grave. A rose by any other name would smell this sweet. And he's right. If you changed the name of the flower from rose to, I don't know, daisy, an impatient, a zinnia, you wouldn't even have to call it a flower name. Whatever you call it, that doesn't change the way that that flower would smell. And, of course, the point was... If Romeo or if Juliet had any last name different than Capulet or Montague, then they could be together. So what is in a name? That's such an apropos question as we get into the second commandment. The second commandment, which has us considering the very name of God. So what an apropos introduction as I pat myself on the back. I'm so clever, and you're so impressed as we start talking about God's name. Before we jump in, just a reminder to you, my email address, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. If you've been listening to the podcast, you've been enjoying the podcast, you can do a couple of things for me. You can subscribe wherever you follow or download your podcast. Just keep downloading them. Set that to automatic download. Tune in. Listen week by week. New episodes on Monday. And here's a big one. Share. Spread the word for those that would like to review their catechism. Thank you in advance. Also, feel free to email me at that address I just gave you, podcast at twicethelutheran.org. 
Let's get into the second commandment. We finished the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. The second commandment, here's the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. What does this mean? There is that Lutheran question. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not use his name to curse, swear, lie, or deceive, or use witchcraft, but call upon God's name in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. As always, if you're following along in your catechism, I'm on page 53. 53. Catechism asks us, We are very blessed that God revealed his name to us. His name is so important that God gave us a commandment to warn against misusing it. So here's the question the catechism asks us. Why did God give us his name? Why do we have God's name? The fact that we have God's name gives us reason to rejoice. God did not have to talk to us. God did not have to tell us about himself, and he did not have to give us his name, but he did. And not only did he give us his name, he gives a whole commandment dedicated just to this principle of his name. Now imagine that you have an emergency. I'm going to assume that you are in the United States. If you have an emergency in the United States and you need help, What number do you call? We teach it. So important that we teach it to kindergartners, right? 911. You call 911 and you tell them what is the problem that you're having. And then you know that help is going to show up because whoever answers the phone is going to send capable people that will help you with your emergency situation. Now imagine for a minute that you didn't know the number for 911. Boy, you'd be in a lot of trouble. You don't know who to call in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of an emergency? What a terrible thing, what a terrible state to be in. Now imagine you did know the number for 911, but you weren't convinced that anyone would come or anyone would help. Would you bother at that point dialing 911? Probably not. Now, the same is true with God's name. God gives us his name to call him up, to dial him up, to call on him. But why should we call on him? Well, because he can do something about our problems. Not only that, he is there to be worshipped and to be praised, to say thank you to him. Now, it's not just me saying that. It is God himself. Romans 10, 13, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So why did God give us his name? Romans ten thirteen says, You call on the name of the Lord so that you're saved. So that you're rescued. And we're not talking about like you just had a car accident and you're bleeding profusely and you're in the ditch somewhere, so call on God's name. Yes, for sure. Do that. Please do that. But not for those sorts of 
being saved situations alone. We're talking about something far more serious than a contusion. Something far more serious than a cut. We're talking about not physical damage. We're talking about spiritual damage, spiritual injury, spiritual fatality, sin. Christ does not just rescue us from the side of the road, from emergency events in life. He can, and he often does. But he gives you his name for a much bigger purpose, to save your soul for eternity. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. A righteous person runs inside and is protected. So there you have, from Romans 10.13, you're saved from Proverbs, you're protected. There is protection in the name of the Lord. Those who have the Lord's name on them, by faith, are protected. Again, not just protection from physical harm, although that is often true. We're talking about protection from spiritual damnation, from eternal death, from slavery to sin, from the power of the devil. You are protected and rescued from that. Call on me in the day of distress. A famous passage, Psalm fifty fifteen. Call on me in the day of distress. I will deliver you and you will honor me. You'll say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for saving me. Back in the catechism again, God's name is very important to us. Through it, meaning through his name, God calls us to be saved. He protects those who believe in his name. He reveals his name to us so that we might trust in his power and pray to him in every need. He teaches us his name so that we might praise him and tell others of the great things he has done. If you have made it this far in your life and you are listening to this podcast right now, just take a minute and think about all the times the Lord through his power rescued you and sustained you. And then take a minute to say thank you, Lord. Thank you for bringing me this far. Thank you for bringing me through trial and hardship. Has the Lord seen you through broken bones and cancer? Has he seen you through near-death experiences? Has he blessed you richly with food to eat and chubby little baby cheeks to kiss and a family and friends? Rejoice for that. Give him thanks for those things. And remember his greatest gift to you, the gift of his son. Blessings that follow you, chase you, as, as King David would write in the 23rd Psalm. Blessings that pursue you all the days of your life and right into heaven. Back to the catechism, with all these blessings coming to us through his name, one might think that we would Always honor his name and treat it with the highest respect. If God's done all that for you, what do you think of the guy? I bet your opinion's pretty high. 
So you'd think that we would just always treat the Lord's name with the highest respect and we'd say his name will only leave my mouth in the highest context, with the highest praise. However, the catechism says. Oh, there's always a however, isn't there? Do you ever notice that? There's always a however. In this sin-filled world and in my sin-filled life, there's always a stinking however. However, our sinful nature opposes God and leads us to misuse God's name, which is the very thing God forbids in the second commandment. So what are some ways that we misuse God's name and that we might not even be aware that we're doing it, but it is an abuse of his name? As we talked before, the law of God serves those three good purposes, right? Curb, mirror, and guide. So let's look into the mirror of God's law as regards his name and how we use it and see what we really look like. Now you heard Martin Luther in the meaning. We should fear and love God that we do not use his name to curse, swear, lie, deceive, or use witchcraft. So there you kind of have the the five categories that we often will kind of slot things into, our sins against his name into those five categories. So what exactly do we mean by those five categories? What does it mean, and does the Scripture really forbid this? You don't need just my opinion. You shouldn't even just take Martin Luther's opinion. (laughs) Does God himself say that those things are sins against his name? Well, James 3.10 says, Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Even I've heard from unbelievers, if, if, if somebody's really running their mouth, we say cussing like a sailor or whatever. What do they say? Do you kiss your mother with that mouth? What are they saying? Your mother, who is so sweet and loves you so much and is so honorable, you would take that filthy mouth that those words just came out of and you would put those lips on her beautiful, blessed cheek? Even apart from the word of God, we would shudder at that thought. Oh, aren't there those things that you'd think, boy, if your mother knew? If your mother knew, what would she say? She would cry over you. We can say the same thing about God. Do you use your mouth to curse and then use that same mouth to bless God? Now, in in English, we oftentimes confuse the words cursing and swearing. So sometimes somebody says a naughty four-letter word, and we say, you shouldn't swear. Well, that's not actually swearing. Those are curse words. So what does it mean to curse? To curse means to wish evil on someone. So when you're using those four-letter words against somebody and calling them those things and wishing that on them, you are literally wishing evil on them. And in fact, we have a curse word that specifically uses God's name. 
sometimes I'll kind of jokingly say, how many hammers do you think are in hell? Because what do you say when you hit your thumb with a hammer? Yeah, you know, and you know you're guilty of doing it too. That's a curse word. We have curses come out of our mouths. And maybe you say, well, pastor, there are some people that just deserve it for who they are and what they've done. Well, how about Romans 12, 14? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That is, that's a big ask. That is a big ask. Especially in in the world, the modern day world, where we're pretty sure anybody that says anything against me or mine, anybody that is this wicked, anybody that would curse God, well, they surely ought to hear curses and evil wishes coming from my mouth towards them. Oh, really? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So what's one way that we sin against this commandment of using God's name? We abuse God's name by cursing. And not just by not just by using God's name specifically in that one specific curse word that has God's name right there. Why is this an abuse of God's name? Because just think about it. Just think how many good things you received from for free from the Lord. The very forgiveness of your sins, the very salvation of your soul came to you while you were still a sinner, the Bible says. And so should you, Though you are a a sinful person like me, though we have been wicked and received so much good instead from the Lord, should we be the people then that wish evil on others? When we evil people have received such good from the Lord? Of course not. We are the people who have God's name. And so let's use God's name by sharing God's name with others, even the most wicked people. And what is the highest blessing you could give to somebody who persecutes you? What is the biggest blessing you could ever give anybody? And if you're thinking in your head, like, a million bucks, no, (laughs) that's not the biggest blessing you could give somebody. The biggest blessing is the gift of knowing Jesus, their Savior. Even if they have persecuted you, even if they have spoken ill against you or your family, bless them. Bless them by telling them about the Lord. Bless them by giving them the name of the Lord so that they might repent and have the blessing of salvation. Bless and do not curse. So don't curse. That is an abuse of God's name. Also, don't swear. Now, what do we mean by swear as opposed to curse? Well, James 5.12 probably is the one that gives us the easiest comparison. Here's what James 5.12 says. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
so that you do not fall under judgment. In fact, doesn't isn't this the passage? I'm reading the Catechism, so I only have that passage in front of me. Isn't this the passage that goes, uh, anything beyond this comes from the evil one? Somebody look that up and let me know. James 5.12. Maybe it's James 5.13. So what's James saying? Swearing. Swearing means to use God's name to pledge that you're telling the truth. Well, you don't need to pledge that you don't need to use God's name to pledge that you're telling the truth in every case. In fact, wouldn't you say that the more often you hear somebody doing that, the less you actually trust them? Isn't that true? Have you ever met somebody that's constantly saying, well, I swear to God. Well, I swear to God I was here. I swear to God I was there. I swear to God I did this. Don't do that. You're sinning against the second commandment. You are needlessly calling on God's name to testify that you're telling the truth. And no one's asking you to do that. And no one needs you to do that. And sometimes the person who does that the most, that's the person I trust the least. (laughs) Why? Can your word not stand on its own? Simply let, James says, your yes be yes. And your no be no. I mean, this plays out in so many small ways in life, doesn't it? If you said you're going to be somewhere at a certain time, guess what? Show up. Show up there at that place at that time because you said you were going to. And if something makes that impossible for you to do that, then let the people know, hey, I really really wish, and I said I was going to be here and I really want to be there, but, you know, Grandma took a fall and I got to take her to the hospital now. (laughs) That's legit. We all get that. We all get that. But if you are constantly struggling to keep your word, you might want to re-examine what is going on in life, that your yes is turning into no and your no is turning into maybe. Don't be that person. And certainly, when things are going sideways, don't call on God to be your witness. I swear. Now, is there is every single instance of swearing sinful? No. There are times when we are called upon to swear. Probably the, the biggest example is in court, right? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Then you'd say, yes, that's an okay time to swear. You're, you're, you are calling on God to be your witness, but you better not perjure yourself. Even if you get away with lying under oath on earth, you won't get away with that in heaven. God hears that oath. Perjury is a big deal. I know it has become sort of commonplace. I mean, politicians, uh, criminals, they perjure themselves all the time. But rest assured, God hears that. And God will hold the perjurer accountable because God's name cannot be invoked to defend a lie, which we'll get to lying in a few minutes. Now, here's a word of advice for you, and this is going to sound a little odd. Here's a word of advice for you. Don't make promises. I'm going to overstate it, and then I'll walk it back from there. Don't make promises. Why do I say that? Because when you make a promise, that's you foretelling the future. Do you ever think about that? 
A promise has you predicting the future. And that's impossible. So don't promise on it because you don't know the future. It is good enough to say to the kids, tomorrow, let's play catch. You don't have to say, I promise tomorrow we'll play catch. You can't possibly promise that. You don't know what tomorrow holds. So don't make promises. Now, I'm going to walk it back from there, and I'm going to say, actually, make as few promises as needed. There are a couple of times when we ask people to make a promise or make a vow. If you look in the Lutheran church, at least, I don't know about the other, the other Christian uh, denominations. If you look in the Lutheran church, we all took a vow at our catechism. Uh, I'm sorry, we all took a vow at our confirmation. So when you studied the catechism and you were confirmed and you became a member of a church, you made a promise. I will faithfully make use of the means of grace. I will faithfully defray the, the cost of the congregation. I will pray for the congregation. Go back in there. That's a big deal. And Not only did you promise that, you promised that before the Lord's altar. You promised that in the Lord's name. How many people have perjured themselves just on their catechism promises alone? The other time that you made a promise, when you were married, that's a promise, that's a contract. That's why we even acknowledge that we're trying to read the future, and in the marriage oaths we're saying, for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, for sickness or in health, till death do us part, I promise my wife I will never leave you until the Lord himself ends our marriage when one of us dies. That's a good promise to make. But keep that promise. Likewise, another promise made before the altar of God. A third promise, and this applies to a sort of unique subset of Christians, uh, pastors called workers. We stand before the altar of God and we promise in front of the congregation and in front of God himself, we will preach from the Bible. We will be faithful and true to the word of God, faithful and true to the Lutheran confessions because they are an exposition, an explanation of the word of God. That is a vow, a promise we make. And it is appropriate to do so. But there again, Keep the promise. Don't perjure yourself. So what do you do when you realize you have? I already told you, just think of how many confirmads have wandered from the faith. Think of your, if you're a confirmed Lutheran, think of your own confirmation class. How many in your confirmation class and how many are still going to church? I bet it ain't all of them. Just think of the divorce rate in our country. How many marriages have ended? That's perjury, right? You broke the contract. You didn't do what you said you were going to do. How many pastors have stopped preaching faithfully from the Scriptures and wandered afar? So what's the answer for those? You already know, don't you? The active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. We're going to review that active and passive obedience at the end of each commandment as we study it. But Jesus Christ, he never swore needlessly. 
You can hear him under oath testifying to the truth at his passion. What is it, Pontius Pilate, I think, says, I, I, tell, I, 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 I tell you under oath, are you Christ? And then Jesus speaks, and he testifies to the truth. And what do we do with all of our perjury? It's pinned on Jesus. It's washed away in his blood. He died. The only one who never perjured himself. The only one who never swore needlessly. The only one who never cursed and always blessed dies on the cross as if he had cursed the whole world. Dies on the cross as if he had broken every single promise that he swore he'd keep. But it was your perjury he died for. It was your broken promises that hung on that cross. So, my dear friend, leave them hang there. Do not swear anymore. Do not curse anymore. Dedicate your mouth to the praise and thanks of God. Dedicate your speech to blessing. Dedicate yourself to being faithful to your word. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's good enough. We should fear and love God that we do not curse, swear, lie. Lie. Now you heard that I covered like generic lying. We, we just talked about that under the, under the issue of swearing. Don't call on God's name to testify to a lie. So when we're talking in this case, curse, swear, and lying, we're talking about the highest form of lying, teaching false doctrine. And you'd say, well, how is teaching false doctrine, false teachings, how is that lying? It's lying because you're saying God said something he didn't say. That's what a lie is. Teaching false doctrine is claiming that something is a sin when it isn't or something isn't a sin when it is. That means you're, you're in, in your lying, you're putting God's name, God's stamp of approval on things that are not true, on false teaching. Now, what are some examples of that? Jesus himself, Matthew 15, 9, they worship me in vain, teaching human rules as if they are doctrines, teaching human rules as if they come from the Bible when they don't. He's talking, of course, about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Modern-day example of that would be Roman Catholicism's canon law. Those are human rules. You cannot say that breaking a human rule is a sin in every case. Matthew 7.15, watch out for false prophets What do they do? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So looks like lamb, talks like wolf. And it's deadly. Jeremiah 23, 31, Indeed, God says, I am against the false prophets, declares the Lord, who use their own tongues to say, this is what the Lord declares when it isn't. 
when they're declaring something the Lord never declared, and then they say, the Lord declared it. That is a lie, and the Lord is against those lies. This is why we are so big on true doctrine. I know, that's a fancy word. We like to sound fancy. It makes me sound smart when I say doctrine instead of teaching. Doctrine means teaching. So false doctrine or false teachings, that's when I say that the Lord said such and so when the Lord never actually said such and so. And true doctrine, true teaching, comes from the Bible. This is what the Lord says. Why are we so big on that? Because we've got one life. we got one chance to get this right. We've got one opportunity to get home to heaven. And we know that that only happens in the blood of Jesus Christ. So we need the true teachings. Give me the truth. A hundred proof, straight and neat. Give it to me. And so the Lord holds highly accountable all who teach his word. You better get it right. Because if you don't, it will injure many souls. So the question is not, does it sound good? The question is not, do I like it? The question is, did the Lord say it? And if he said it, it's the truth. So teach the truth. We protect our mouths from lying. By preaching the truth of God's word, whether it's comfortable or neat or not, we preach the Lord's truth. And that relates to the second commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Don't put lies into God's mouth when you are preaching his word. Otherwise, you ruin his reputation. You ruin his name. We should not curse, swear, lie, or deceive. See, these ones are very, very closely related. Swearing, lying, and deceiving. Now, we use God's name uh, to deceive other people, right? And we're deceiving other people if we pretend that we're faithful followers of God in order to cover our sins. Matthew 15, back in the catechism, hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This coming week, I will preach in church on the parable of the two sons from Matthew's gospel. In fact, yeah, Matthew what, 22, 23? That's the one. Two sons. One says, yep, I'll go work in the field. He never does. The other one says, nope, I'm not going to go work in the field, but he does. Hypocrites. There's deception going on here. Because what's happening with the hands is not reflected in the heart and vice versa. Do not deceive. Don't try to trick people. We don't deceive when we live the life of a Christian. 
X5, again, parenthetical statements. Mm, yes, I'm so smart. I say things like parenthetical statement. <laughs> A summary from Acts chapter 5. Remember, that's what it means when stuff is in the parentheses in the catechism. Ananias and Sapphira tried to deceive the other disciples into believing they were giving all their proceeds from the sale of the property to the church as a gift. And it's like the stupidest reason to die. Even the Apostle Peter points it out. Hey, when you sold the land, the whole amount of the sale, that was all your money. (laughs) You could have kept all that in good conscience. But that's not what Ananias and Sapphira did. They gave a portion to church. Wonderful. Beautiful. Do that. But when they gave a portion to church, they swore up and down. This is, all, this is every last penny we got. So the issue, the, the, the sin there was not that they didn't give every last penny. The issue was that they lied about giving every last penny when they didn't. And so they died. Deception cost them their life. Matthew 23, 23 through 33, back in the Catechism, again, another parenthetical statement. Jesus condemned the teachers of the law and the Pharisees for being hypocrites, saying one thing and doing another, right? saying one thing with their lips and having something completely opposite in their hearts. The Pharisees were members of a Jewish group that focused on keeping the law, keeping laws. They even added laws to those given in the Bible because they wanted to make extra sure that they didn't break any Bible laws. Although they claimed to follow God and tried to show off their goodness and godliness, their zeal didn't flow from love for God. See, there's the issue. We don't serve God as downcast teenagers who have been just told to clean their room, and they do it but begrudgingly. Like, I'm going to clean my room, but I'm going to frown the whole time. Uh, take that. Uh, mom and dad are so mean. i got to clean my room. Is that a God-pleasing attitude by which to serve him? No, that's hypocritical. When you serve God, but the whole time in your heart, you're thinking, this is terrible. He's so mean. Often, back to the catechism, often they tried to use their, quote, godliness as a cover for their greed and the evil things they were doing. If you are trying to have an outward show of what we would call piety, but the whole time before, behind closed doors, you're doing something completely opposite. This is deception. At some point, we'll talk about, like, maybe probably in the fifth commandment, uh, issues related to um, the health of, of body and mind. But let's mention one here. Sunday morning, we all agree, pornography is a sin, breaking the sixth commandment. But how many behind closed doors are putting things on a computer screen and a phone screen that they ought not? This is a practice in deception. Doing one thing publicly and another thing privately. Doing one thing outwardly when Christ inwardly hasn't won the heart yet. 
And by the way, bear that in mind when you're dealing with correcting sin. We haven't won the victory just by changing someone's behavior. That's not winning the victory. That's deception. Another word for that would be legalism. Changing your behavior outwardly without changing inwardly the heart. Be careful about that. Oh, I've been humbled there as a dad. I think we as parents, we learned this one. Sometimes we get so focused on the outward behavior of our children that we forget about the heart issues. You haven't won the victory if you if you have disciplined the child and so the child changes their behavior. That's not the end of your work. There is heart work to be done there too. We seek to win the heart first. And the behavior will follow. And this is what the Lord does with us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't come down from heaven with a with a omnipotent slap across the face and said, Get your act together. Knock it off. Clean up your language. That's not what he did. Sometimes we act as if that's what God did. But what did God do? He died for you to win your heart. He died for you for free. And now says, here's ten commandments. Here's ten ways for you to say thank you. So we're starting off on the wrong foot if we say, our goal is behavior modification. No, it's not. No, it's not. That is not our goal. The goal of sharing God's law and gospel is winning the heart. Now, outward behavior can be an indication of what's going on in the heart. But just to modify behavior, that you're going to lose. You're going to lose. Christ came to win the heart. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. We should fear and love God that we do not use his name to curse, swear, lie, deceive, or... And here's the one we'll, we'll close out on today. Or use witchcraft. Did you ever scratch your head at that one if you ever heard that? What? What is the connection between God's name and witchcraft? Well, witchcraft or the occult or superstitions, why are those all sins? It's a sin because you are trusting in power that ultimately is coming from Satan and is opposed to the power and will of God. That's from the Catechism on page 55. If you call on God's name in trouble, because he alone has the power to deliver you, he alone is worthy of your honor, then don't take the honor that you know is due his powerful name and start to try and manipulate things around you with good luck charms. Deuteronomy 18, Let no one be found among you who makes his son or his daughter pass through fire or who uses divination. Sometimes divination was like uh, you know, reading the tea leaves, reading up your palm, okay, or who engages in fortune-telling. 
or who observes omens, or who practices witchcraft, or who casts magic spell, or who consults a ghost or a familiar spirit, or who inquires of the dead. Anyone doing these things is detestable to the Lord, because, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. If you agree with me and with Scripture that God has ultimate power and authority in his name, then stop reading your stinking horoscope. Because the stars in the sky do not determine your future. The Lord your God does. That's probably the biggest way we sin against this one in the in the uh, witchcraft category. I kind of doubt any of you know anybody that has a cauldron boiling with the wing of a bat and the hair of a newt. A newt. A hair of a... Do newts have hairs? I don't know. But if they did, I bet a witch would want to use them. I doubt any of you are doing that sort of like outwardly what we call gross, big, uh, like practicing magic. Eh, maybe some of you are. Stop it. But boy, the big one is horoscopes and astrology. Or or just uh, good luck charms or j- this generic sense of luck. I've even heard them the more modern day saying good vibes. Send good vibes. What is that? That's superstition. Some ethe- How do I do that? How do I send good vibes? Think really hard? Okay, there. I sent out some good vibes. I don't know what that means. So instead of sending good vibes for anybody, I will pray for you. I will call on the name of my powerful Lord and Savior for you because he is more powerful than my good vibes. He directs my future and yours too, not a horoscope. He alone watches over the living and the dead. Not not a medium or a witch or somebody trying to contact the dead. Don't don't do that. Because finally you're ascribing power somewhere other than God's name. You're trying to manipulate the world around you aside from the power that is in God's name. He is not giving you his blessing to do that. Besides, when you get messed up in the occult, sometimes the occult messes back with you. Don't invite demons because you know what? Sometimes they show up. And when they show up, they don't often like to leave. Don't go don't get involved with that stuff. You keep your kids away from it too. This this Ouija boards and Charlie Charlie and all this tapping into power that does not come from God. This is an invitation to Satan. So if you've gone down that road, Tarot cards and healing crystals, sage cleansings, ghosts and spirits and palm readings. Get rid of it. Throw it out. You know why? None of it saved your soul. And in fact, it threatens your soul. Throw it all out and try this instead. Call on the name of the Lord. He is the one who has blessed you. He is the one who has seen you through thick and thin. He is the one 
who has provided for you every single day of your life and continues to make that promise to you over and over and over again. You are my child. He who never slumbers or sleeps, he who never gets tired and never rests, watches over you. You are his special focus. His special care and concern is directed at you. So get rid of anything that would compete with the Lord in that regard. It won't serve you, but the Lord will. Because he has the power to do so, and he has the track record of having done so. That seems like a pretty good place to wrap it up. Don't you think? I think so. Thank you again, friends for spending some more time with me this week. Again, reach out to me, podcast, at twicethelutheran.org. I'd love to hear from you. See you on the next one.